Good morning again, family. Thank you for joining us this morning. It really is a privilege to be able to join with you, to join our hearts together in worship, to be able to sing and pray and give and hear God's word. This is a precious gift. And I just want to remind you that even in a time like this when we can't gather together, that doesn't mean we can't worship together. Because that's what we're doing this very morning. We are worshiping the living God who has revealed himself and spoken through his word. As you heard, we today we continue in our series in the book of Genesis as we're looking at the final section of Genesis, looking at the life of Joseph. And we call this series, uh, Trusting the Goodness of God. And we have been learning on this journey with Joseph how, how to trust God, that God is good even when life is bad. And it's been a hard lesson for, jo- for Joseph as, as much as it is a hard lesson for all of us as we journey in this world. Today's message is this. <clears throat> when good things happen to bad people. Good things happen to bad people. Most people are used to hearing the phrase flipped on the other way, right? That when bad things happen to good people. It's a question all of us have to wrestle with. Why do bad things happen to to so many good people in this world? And that's a legitimate question, and and it's worth wrestling with. But today, I want to flip it around and ask you, have you ever stopped and asked this question? Why do good things happen to bad people? Why does God allow anything good to happen to those who are so messed up? And before you start thinking about that coworker who you think is really bad, or that neighbor, or that person, when you hear bad people, you're like, oh yeah, I know who you're talking about, those bad people out there. No, let me just remind you, we're all messed up. One time Jesus was approached by a rich young ruler, and he said, good teacher. And Jesus said to him, no, 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 don't call me good. There's no one good except God. We all had this deeply ingrained selfishness in us that is evident from an early age. You know, moms and dads love when babies start to, to talk and they start saying, Mama or Dada. And I, I remember trying to get my kids to say them as quickly as I can. Say Dada before you say Mama. And when they say Mama, it's so sweet, it's so precious. But we all know that the word is coming that will rule all other words. Mine. Mine. And when they say that word, that's it. It rules everything. Mine. And we never graduate from that, that mindset, that attitude. Bad people doesn't just mean the worst people. It means sinful people. It means all of us. So the question really is, why does God allow good things to happen to any of us? And the answer is really just one word. It boils down to this. Grace. It's grace. It's not because we deserve it. It's not because people have earned it. It's not because we, people follow his commands and therefore he, he gives them good things. It's not because people have enough faith. It's not even because we're better than other people who are really bad. No, it is grace that God allows any good to happen to anybody in our world. Grace is God loving us when we least expect it and least deserve it. This morning's text teaches us that God is so sovereign, so in control, that he uses even the bad things in our lives and in our world to bring good things in our lives, in our world. And that's actually his grace at work in our lives. If you don't have your Bible out, go ahead and turn to Genesis chapter 45. Aaron read that for us just a moment ago. 
Today's account is the resolution to the tension of the entire Joseph story, which began back in Genesis chapter 37. And here's the first lesson that we learn. God works all things for the good of his people. God works all things for the good of his people. Back in Genesis 37, we learned, we discovered this young man, Joseph. He's a son of Jacob. Joseph had the divine gift of interpreting dreams. Uh, but he was, and he was also Jacob's favorite son. Uh, but he was spoiled by his father. And he was hated by his brothers because he acted so arrogantly with his dreams. And so his brothers despised him so much, they, they, they ripped that, that robe off of Joseph and they threw him in a pit. And ultimately they, they sold him off into slavery and they told their dad that he was dead. And after many years in slavery and in prison, Joseph ends up interpreting Pharaoh's dream and in, about an impending famine, and he ends up becoming second in command of all of Egypt, leading the charge to protect the nation and the region against this famine. Joseph's brothers are still living in Canaan with their dad. They run out of food, and so they make a trip to Egypt to buy, to buy grain, and they encounter Joseph not knowing it's him. And Joseph recognizes his brothers and he, and he orchestrates this elaborate plan to determine if his brothers are still the heartless men who sold him into slavery or has God been working in their hearts? Have they changed? Have they repented? And after several tests, the brothers have shown they have truly changed. We saw last week that, J that Joseph threatened to take Benjamin as a slave because he had planted a cup in Benjamin's sack. And Judah, Judah who had messed up so much, steps up for Benjamin, confesses to Joseph, not knowing that it's him, that he had sold their brother off many years ago to slavery and said, we can never do that again. We will stand in the place of Benjamin. Ju Judah says, take me instead of Benjamin. He's willing to take the guilt of his brother rather than let his younger brother become a slave. This is the moment Joseph has been waiting for. That's where chapter 44 ends and 45 begins. Because the brothers not only admit their guilt, they also show they are unwilling to abandon their younger brother in order to save themselves. You see, because Judah was willing to suffer for a crime that he did not commit, they were all forgiven of the crime that they did commit. A transformation has taken place in their hearts. The test is over. Joseph can't take it anymore. And, he, and he's already broke down twice before and wept. And he's left them and, and gone, down, gone away and wept bitterly. But now he, he can't control his emotions. Verse 1 of chapter 45. He tells everyone else to leave. He sees true repentance in his brothers and at least a deep mercy for them because he's about to reveal himself and he makes all the Egyptian attendants leave because he's about to have this intimate moment with his brothers. And up until now, Joseph has been speaking in Egyptian, a language that, that required an interpreter for the brothers. But now, everyone is gone. It's just Joseph and his brothers and he begins to speak in Hebrew. And that's why he says in verse 3, I am Joseph. It's me. He speaks in their own language. And then he says something that may sound strange. He says, is my father still alive? You see that? Joseph is wanting to know how his father's really doing. In the Old Testament, to be alive doesn't just mean to, to have breath in your lungs. It means, uh, is, he, is he thriving? Has he, has he, is he still sorrowing or has he found peace over the years? 
Maybe even wondering, is he well enough to make this journey that I'm about to propose for all of you? The brothers can't even answer him. They, They don't say a word. It says they're dismayed or they're terrified at his presence. They're panic-stricken. They can't believe what they're hearing. Think about what's happening here. This is a complete reversal from Genesis 37. Genesis 37, the brothers were in a position of power. They were older, they were stronger, and Joseph was destitute, powerless, in a pit. Now, everything has been flipped over. Joseph is in a position of power. And his brothers are destitute. They're hungry. They're desperate to get food. And Joseph could say one word and they would be put in prison. How will Joseph treat them now that the roles are reversed? The brothers are not only silenced, they're, they're, they're shocked. They're not convinced. And so Joseph says, come closer, come closer. Notice verse 4, come near to me. And then he says, he reveals something. He says, I am Joseph whom you sold to Egypt. No one else knows that information. No one other than the brothers and Joseph knows that. Now they begin to realize. And notice Joseph doesn't relieve them of the guilt, of the responsibility of their sinful actions. He says, you are guilty. You sold me to Egypt. And yet after enduring everything he did, he forgives his brothers. What Joseph reveals next is the overarching theme of the Joseph account. The entire Joseph story has been building to what he's about to say here, and he'll reiterate it again in chapter 50. This is the theme. If you've been kind of sleeping along, wake up. Here's what the Joseph story is about. Here's the big idea. If you want the cliff notes, here it is. The Joseph account is about God as the main actor in this story, the true hero working all things for his ultimate end. Verse 5, what does Joseph say? You sold me, but God sent me here. This is how we must view all of life, Christian. This is, if you want to follow God, if you want to be a follower of Jesus, this is the biblical vision of a God-centered life. We must clearly see the two aspects of everything that happens in life. On the one hand, you have the free will, the free actions of human beings. And in parentheses on that side, you could also put the blind work of nature. But you have the free act of humans. And on the other hand, you have the perfect will of God. And here's what I want you to understand. In order to make sense of the first truth, the free will of humans, you have to have a strong sense of the second truth, the sovereign will of God, the perfect will of God. Three times here in this text, verse 5, verse 7, and verse 8, three times Joseph says, God sent me here. He could have said it once and it would have been true. But for the brother's sake and for our sake, Joseph reiterates it three times because he's driving home this point. Because God wants us to know this is what he's been doing throughout the entire narrative. This is what has been happening in the background when all you're seeing is the human actions. Now, now Joseph peels back the veil. Now God peels back the veil and says, now let me show you what I have been doing. 
In fact, look at what it says in verse 8. First he says, you sent me here, but God sent me here. You saw me, but God sent me. Then verse 8 he says, no, actually it was not you who sent me here, but God. He makes an even stronger case that their actions were not decisive, that it was, it was God's actions that were decisive in their evil, which was wrong, in their actions, which were wrong. Yes, but their choices were not decisive in determining what happens in this world. God's will is decisive. You didn't send me here, God did. Now, you and I may wrestle with that truth, and that's fine, but listen, your theology should be informed by Scripture. You, should not have, you shouldn't have a, 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 a formed theology and then go to Scripture to prove it. Let Scripture shape what you believe. He's saying to his brothers, and he'll say it again in chapter 50, you didn't send me here, God did. In other words, it was the will of God that brought about the present circumstances. This is the doctrine of providence that we've talked about before in this series already. Providence. One definition of providence is God accomplishing his perfect will in and through the actions of all people, whether good or bad. Do you believe that? Do you believe God is so sovereign that he's so in control that even in the evils that you do or the evils that are done to you, those cannot thwart God's plan for your life or for our world. Do you believe that? Paul says it this way. It was read in our, our gospel proclamation earlier, Romans 8, 28. And we know, and we are certain, and we are sure, Paul says, and we are convinced, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. All things work together for good. Joseph wanted his brothers to take comfort from the fact that God used their evil deeds ultimately to preserve life. Listen, we will never fully understand what God is doing. I, I can't begin to explain why the coronavirus is ravishing our world. I'm not smart enough, wise enough, and I don't want to presume to act like I know. And in the midst of our suffering, here's the thing. We are not great at seeing God's providential hand. When you are in the midst of suffering, when evil has been done to you, when you feel like the world is crashing down on you, we are not good at having clear eyes to see what God is doing. It's like in the midst of a storm, the rain is beating down. We can't tell where we're going. But just because we can't see God at work doesn't mean he's not at work. Just because I can't see the wind, does that mean it's not there? Just because I visit my, uh, my cousin in Florida and all of a sudden at night, things start biting my legs and I can't see them because they're called no see These little bugs and they bite you. Does that mean they don't exist? No. They hurt. They exist. Just because you can't see God at work doesn't mean he's not at work. And in spite of all the evil done to him, Joseph is able to, to see the good that God had done. It's not in the midst of it. It's as he's looking back. Look at verse 8 
The second part. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh, Lord of all his house, and ruler over the land of Egypt. You may not be at a place where you can see all or even some of what God is doing through your trials. But can you still trust that God is good and will work everything together for good, even in this messed up world, even in the things that you've been through? Are you convinced God is so sovereign and, and, and that his providence uh, is at work so that in every situation in your life, he will ultimately work for your good and his glory? That's what God is up to in our world. That's what God is up to in your life. That's what God was up to in Joseph's life. Even when he couldn't see it, even when Jacob and the brothers couldn't see it. Lesson number two. Trusting the providence of God empowers you to forgive others. Trusting the providence of God empowers you to forgive others. We read this story and it begs the question, how, how, is, it, how is Joseph able to forgive? How is he able to do this? Especially when we find it so hard to forgive ourselves. We, it's so hard to forgive someone who's not just hurt, hurt us in a small way, but has wounded us deeply. How did he do it? You know, justice must be done, right? They'd wronged him badly. Joseph is able to forgive them because he understands God's providence has been directing everything in his life, including the sinful actions of his brothers. God uses the evil, evil things that people do to bring about his plan. That's the central theme. And we see this tension between God's sovereign will and the human will. The brothers sold him off to Egypt out of hatred, but he says, again, verse 5, no, God sent me here. It's really hard for us to accept, but repeatedly the Bible teaches us that even the sinful things that happen in our world turn out to be a part of God's plan. And it doesn't excuse sin, the Bible makes very clear God is just and he will judge all sin. But what it does show is that sinful actions can't thwart his plans. Even sinful actions must bow to God's sovereign plan to bring good even out of evil. And, you, and we don't have to look any further than the cross. Here's how Peter describes what happened. When he preached in Acts chapter 2, he says, This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. In other words, it was ordained from the beginning of time. God planned it. He ordained it. He knew it was going to happen. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Do you see that? Their evil, their sin, what they have done, the wickedness in killing Jesus, the perfect Son of God was God's definite plan from the beginning. And Jesus, knowing this, knowing this, on the cross, he knew it was God's plan and he endured it all. And that's why he was able to say from the cross, Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. The more we are able to trust that God's good and gracious plan continues even through the sins of others, the more we will be able to forgive the sins of others. So I need to ask, has someone sinned against you in a deeply painful way? 
I'm not going to minimize the emotional and the relational pain that you've endured. But if God is working all things for your good, can you at least acknowledge that even if you don't understand how, that God must be working even in this for your good? Maybe the situation will, will reveal your own heart more clearly, like it did for Joseph. Maybe it will lead to the humbling of others as they repent and are transformed by God's grace. Maybe this trial will show you how, desperate you, how desperately you need fellow believers to, to support you, to carry the burden with you. Maybe it will show you how desperate you need the Lord, that you can't make it on your own. I don't know what God is doing. Again, I can't presume, but I can say this. I, I know what it's like. And I know many of you know what it's like to be sinned against greatly. Let me share a quick story from someone you, you probably have heard of, Corey Ten Boom. Corey Ten Boom was arrested for hiding Dutch Jews from the Nazis and survived the horrors of the concentration camp. And, 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 and she, she was astonished to, 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 be, to endure such horrible things. And her sister Betsy died in the concentration camp. After being freed by the Allied forces, Corrie ten Boom traveled the world for over 30 years, sharing God's forgiveness of sin and the need for people to forgive those who have hurt them. Corrie writes that in 1947, her own message was put to the test. She was speaking in a Munich church, and at the close of the service, a balding man in a gray overcoat stepped forward to greet her. Connie froze. Corrie froze. She knew this man well. He had been one of the most vicious guards at Ravensbrück one who had mocked the women prisoners as they showered. Quote, it came back with a rush. The huge room with its harsh overhead lights, the pathetic pile of dresses and shoes in the center of the floor, the shame of walking naked past this man. And now he was pushing his hand out to shake hers and saying, a fine message, Fräulein. How good is it to know that as you say, all our sins are at the bottom of the sea. And I, who had spoken so glibly of forgiveness, she says, fumbled in my pocketbook rather than take the hand. I was face to face with one of my captors, and my blood seemed to freeze. He continues, you mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk. I was a guard there. But since that time, he went on, I've become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me the cruel things I did there. But I would like to hear from your lips as well, Fräulein. Again, the hand came out. Will you forgive me? She writes, and I stood there. I whose sins had again and again been forgiven, and I could not forgive. Betsy had died in that place. Could he erase her slow, terrible death simply for the asking? The soldier stood there expectantly, waiting for Corey to shake his hand. I wrestled with the most difficult thing I ever had to do, for I had to do it. I know that. Standing there before the former SS man, Corey remembered that forgiveness is an act of the will, not an emotion. She cried out, quote, Jesus, help me. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. You can supply the feeling. Corey thrust out her hand. She, she says, as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, raced down my arms, sprang into my hands, and then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, 
I cried with all my heart. For a long moment, we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner. I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. But even so, I realized it was not my love. I had tried and I did not have power. It was the power of the Holy Spirit. Where does that ability to forgive come from? It only can come from a, a place, a clear sense that God is sovereign, that he is good even when life is bad, and that he's working even the most painful things for our good. When you are convinced of that, you'll be able to forgive others who have hurt you. Notice forgiveness is not the same thing as reconciliation. They probably didn't go out for coffee after this. Joseph had forgiven his brothers long ago, and that's what allowed him to put his brothers to the test to determine if their hearts had changed. But the reason Joseph experienced reconciliation with his brothers, a restoration of the relationship, is because they repented of their sin. They turned. They had proven they were no longer the same heartless men who would sell their brother into slavery, and that led not only to forgiveness, but reconciliation. Listen, until there was repentance... From the one who wronged you, there can be no full reconciliation. But back to my question. Is there someone you need to forgive today? Is there someone you need to keep pursuing to see if reconciliation is possible like Joseph did? Trust in God's providence can give you the courage to do that. Finally, lesson three. Christianity is a, a journey of faith in God's forgiveness and grace. Christianity is a journey of faith in God's forgiveness and His grace. Verse 9, in light of the fact that there are five more years of famine, Joseph tells his brothers, go back, get my father and our father, and bring all the stuff and the rest of the family, and come back to Egypt, and there's plenty of food here to, to weather the rest of the crisis. Be here. You'll live on the best part of the land. This is amazing. This is grace personified. You treated me the worst possible way imaginable. And now I'm going to treat you the best possible way imaginable. It's amazing. It's unheard of. It's grace. They will live in Goshen, he says. The family, the whole family will be reunited. He says, tell dad you've seen me with my own eyes. You heard me speak in Hebrew. It's really me. After a speech, Joseph gives in to all the emotions again. He starts weeping. He hugs Benjamin first. He hugs all of his brothers. They all hug and kiss one another, it says, and they weep together, verse 15. Up until now, the brothers have been silent. They have not said a word. It's been hard to believe that they could actually be forgiven. But by ver verse 15, they finally gain the courage to speak. And they experience this beautiful reconciliation. And then Pharaoh hears about Joseph's brothers. He didn't know what happened, but he knows that they're there. And so he, he's pleased to offer a royal invitation. Yes, bring Joseph's family to Egypt. That's the least I can do to thank Joseph for what he's done for our nation. And, and Joseph sends them home with, with a gift for each of the brothers and his father as well. Notice what he gives them, verse 22. He gives them each a change of clothes. The, the text says um, robes or, or, or fancy clothes. These likely would have been festive robes of, of, of fine Egyptian linen. Do you realize what's happening? This story has come full circle. The very thing that 
that his brothers despised Joseph over a robe of many colors, his clothes, Joseph is now giving to every one of his brothers. That's grace. That's reconciliation. That's forgiveness. And then he tells his brother, verse 24, he gives him practical advice. Don't, don't quarrel on the way back. What's up with that? He's saying, look, I know you're tempted. You're going to be tempted to, to make accusations of each other. All their emotions over the last 20 years are going to bubble out. Don't do that. I don't want that. Go home and get dad. It's over. Come back. And the final scene is of the brothers back in Canaan with their father telling him the stunning news that Joseph is still alive and is the ruler of Egypt. It says Joseph's, Jacob's heart became numb. That means he, he was overwhelmed. It was too incredible to be true. After 20 plus years of mourning the loss of Joseph, can he really be alive? But when they told Jacob everything Joseph said, when they show him the wagons full of supplies, J Jacob's heart is revived and he goes from hesitancy to eagerness. He says, let's go right now. I'm ready to go. I'm going to go to Egypt to see my son who I thought was dead. I'm going to go to Egypt before I die. And it also means his whole family will be saved from the famine in the land. You see, even in his old age, Jacob had to trust the providence of God and the goodness of God. He had to gather his entire family, leave the land of promise, which is a big deal, believing that God was using Joseph in Egypt to fulfill his promise made to Jacob's great-grandfather Abraham, his grandfather Abraham, that he would bless his family and through this family bless the whole world. God was fulfilling his covenant, protecting this family, taking them to Egypt, which was his, his divinely ordained plan to eventually bring them back into the land hundreds of years later. This took incredible faith on Jacob's part. He's old enough to know, listen, he's old enough to know that when he says goodbye to the land, when he packs up his stuff and leaves Canaan, Jacob knows he's not coming back. He's not going to die in the land. He had the faith to trust God. I'm leaving the land of promise. I'm going to trust you are protecting our family through my son Joseph, through you working good, even in evil. And he goes. Listen, the Joseph story is a profound picture of God's love for us. From the beginning of Genesis on, up until here, throughout the whole Bible, we see people sinning against God, rejecting God, breaking relationship with God, and it breaks relationships with each other. And yet time and time again, God shows this lavish love, this love that, that's willing to, to overcome obstacles, a love that's willing to forgive and bestow unbelievable grace. And here in the life of Joseph, we see that love on full display. Joseph is willing to forgive his brothers, do the hard work of reconciliation, willing to absorb the debt of their sin, the debt that, that their sin caused him. Not only that, he's willing to rescue them from the famine and bring them into Egypt where they're not just going to live quietly separated. No, they're going to live in the richest part of the land. All because of God's providential yet painful plan of taking him through the pit, into slavery, in prison, and now into the palace. Joseph was sent to Egypt by God to save his people. 
Joseph is a picture of the forgiveness and grace offered to you and I in Jesus Christ. God sent Jesus to save us, not just from physical death like Joseph, but from spiritual death. Jesus lived and he suffered and he died and he rose from the dead in God's sovereign plan to rescue you and I from our sin and to give us eternal life. You see, the only way for God to forgive us The only way for us to experience not just forgiveness, but reconciliation with our Heavenly Father is for justice to be done. Jesus had to become our substitute, just like Joseph had to absorb the evil done to him. Jesus had to absorb all the evil we have done to God. Jesus died for our sin. He died in your place. Only a perfect substitute could do that. An animal couldn't do that. An angel couldn't die in our place. Not even another human. It had to be God himself in the person of Jesus Christ. He took all of your guilt and we get all of his righteousness. That's the good news of the gospel. If you will turn from your sin, if you will admit, I have blown it, God. I've, not, I've lived for myself. I've lived selfishly. God, I turn to you. Listen, you can receive Jesus as your Savior by faith alone, not by your good works, but by faith in his gift, the gift of forgiveness, the gift of eternal life through Jesus and Jesus alone. And listen, Christian, we may feel like it's hard to, to feel forgiven by God. But the reality is in Christ, all of our sins, past, present, and future, are gone. Thrown, as Corey says, to the the bottom of the ocean. When it sinks in that God could forgive anything that you have done, you will find a greater power, a courage, to forgive others for what they have done to you. And just like Jacob and his sons had to trust Joseph, we must be willing to trust God no matter how difficult life gets. We, we, have to, we might face doubts. We might, we might experience doubts about whether God's really working thing, all things out for good. And even in our doubts, and I've said this before, we may, we may not understand God's plans, but we can trust his heart. And the cross proves that. The cross proves that even if I don't understand God's plan, I know that if in the greatest evil in human history, God could bring about the greatest salvation, the greatest good, then can I not believe that in my life, God is working all things out for my good, for your good, for the good of his people, for the glory of his son. You see, good things happen to bad people all the time. It's God's grace It's God's grace, even the bad circumstances. It's God's grace as he is shaping us and protecting us and delivering us. And one day, as as the picture of Joseph bringing his family into to eat the fat of the land, one day we will be in God's kingdom feasting in the greatest possible way when all sin and suffering is gone. And we will see as God peels back the curtain and says, ah, it was not that person who did that to you. It was me working all things out. When you see it all and you sit at the table with him, knowing as he knows, you will be able to say, God, you are good in every way. Your sovereignty is amazing, and we will feast. That's his grace. That's his amazing grace. Have you trusted in Jesus Christ as your Savior? If you haven't today, I'm going to invite you to do that as we pray. Christian, are you trusting the providence of God? Is there someone you need to forgive today? Would you join me in prayer? Lord, 
Lord, we're coming to you desperate. We're coming to you broken. We need you. We need your grace. Lord, I come on behalf of those who, who are interested. I got an email just this week of someone wanting to know what does it mean to be saved? He's been watching our live stream. God, I pray that today those who are listening, who, who, who have heard of Jesus but have not trusted in Jesus, I pray that right now where they are, they might, they might turn to you in true repentance of faith. That they might cry out to you and admit their sin Admit their rejection of you. Admit that they've tried to live as if they're in charge and that they would believe, put their faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God who died for their sin and rose from the dead so that in Christ they might be made a new creation, so that in Christ they might find full forgiveness and the gift of eternal life. God, do that right now for those who need to accept you. Give them that gift. For every Christian, everyone who's struggling to forgive someone in their life, God, do what, what, what we cannot do. By the power of your Spirit, give us the courage to forgive, to release that person from the debt. As we understand how we've been released, may we release others. There might not be reconciliation yet, Lord, but I pray that, there would be, that it would begin with forgiveness. Lord, do an amazing work in our church. Continue to use us to trust you, to trust in your grace, to walk by faith, even as Jacob had to do at the end of his life. Help us to never outgrow our need to walk this journey of faith in the midst of a world that has gone crazy. We say, Lord Jesus, come quickly. And until then, Lord, show us it is your grace that will sustain us every day, every minute, and even every moment. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.